morning, everybody. I am glad to be with you guys. We have actually wanted to get over here for quite some time, and, and this was the perfect opportunity to do so. So we're, we're excited to be here, uh, my wife and I and our, our kids. And uh, it was funny, though, when, when I touched base with Heath <coughs> a couple weeks back, and, and I was like, okay, so, you know, what do you, what do you want me to preach about? Whatever, you know, whatever you want, whatever you, wherever you feel like the congregation is, whatever you think needs to be heard. And he's like, well, I'm thinking about it. A three-week series on stewardship. I, I'm not lying. I was like, "Are you kidding? Like, I have to kick off a stewardship series?" Or okay, um, because there's a lot of connotations that come with that sometimes in our culture. And as the guy who just kind of like the new guy who gets thrown in, you're like, "Is this a joke? Are you playing a joke on?" But I think have a lot of people on vacation right now. I'm just only imagining you guys talking to them while they're coming back and be like, yeah, we just started a three-week series on stewardship. And they're probably like, yeah, I think we had a couple more vacations the next couple weeks we need to stay on. Because um, it does that in our culture sometimes, this, this concept of stewardship because of the connotations that come with that, especially as they relate to a church or a body believers gathering together and the concept of the uh, giving over of not just um, as we prayed over the offering, not just of resources, financial resources, but of time, of everything else, and all the things that play in as we think about what that means to us, and think about where we're giving what we're giving, and think about the motivations behind the people who are asking us to give, and like all these things kind of get tangled up, and we see all these different concepts out there in the culture about what, what does stewardship mean, other than just the, the basic definition of taking care of someone else's stuff. Um, but what does it mean for me to participate in that um, as an individual? Um, so I'd, I had a friend one time, and he, he went camping at Big Ben, and they met uh, these Germans that they became friends with and kind of became email pals. And they got an email a couple years later, and we're like, hey, we got some friends coming through the States. They're just kind of backpacking around. They're going to be coming through Houston for a few days. Can they crash with you? Sure, you know, the guys come, they show up, they happen to be on a weekend, and so they're like, hey guys, just so you know, like, y'all are welcome to be here, but we go to church on Sunday, so you want to come with us? And, and the guys are like, mm, not really our thing, we don't really, we don't really dig the church where we're at, um, because it's all about money. Like, we have taxes that we don't have a choice about, they take our money, whether we want them to or not, and give it to the church. Um, at the time, you couldn't, couldn't opt out and stuff like that over there. But this was their, their, their concept of just what the church was, what it was about. And my buddies were like, oh, no, 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 no. It's totally different. You're not, it's not going to be like that. I promise. Come with us. You'll see. Okay. So they go with them. Unknowingly, my friends, uh, it was the one Sunday, the annual Sunday at their church where they would actually specifically talk about tithing and corporately they would do it in such a way that like if you weren't a member of the congregation it was weird right I mean it was kind of weird even if you were a member of the congregation like it was so visual and stand up and do it was anyway I'm just saying so they didn't know but the second the announcement came about what they were talking about that day my buddies were just like oh no because these guys are sitting in their chairs these German friends of theirs and they're just like wow we never even imagined it. it could have been like this, you know. Uh, this isn't, this isn't kind of, this is overt. This isn't even like covert. Um, 
And so all that did is then reinforce, based upon the experiences these guys had had, it reinforced their assumptions about the reality of what the church is and what stewardship and what giving and what all these other things mean when you're in that context. Right or wrong, and I would say wrong, but it reinforced their assumptions about that. Um, so what if then, instead of talking about a three-week series on stewardship, we talked about a three-week series on the liberation of your soul unto joy? What if we talked about that? More people might be inclined to make that three-week series, right? But as these two things, I think it, hopefully as we work through this, you'll actually see that these two things are intricately linked to one another, inescapably linked to one another, especially in our cultural context that we find ourselves today. Um, and so what I just want to say, if you hear today and through this series, if your takeaway is from what we're saying, um, you need to give more money, then you have completely misunderstood what I'm saying. Completely. And I would say that you've actually completely misunderstood what Christianity is. That, you, that you've come with some assumptions, understandably so, based upon whatever your past experiences are, but some assumptions about the reality of who Jesus is and what people who proclaim his name are like as they gather together and what they're about, some assumptions that kind of cast an, an augmented view of reality of what that is. Okay, just want to throw that out there. And I would say regardless of your experiences, again, whatever the Germans had experienced up to that point, whatever they experienced in that church that day, regardless of those experiences, Jesus' word and calling to us and what he says life is like as, we're li as we live it out in relationship with him and one another is radically different than that, right? So um, I would even say that if we see stewardship primarily just in terms of money. That's a really juvenile way of understanding stewardship, kind of like worship. If you think about worship and you just think it's singing songs, right? That's a very juvenile understanding of what worship is and stewardship. Not juvenile in the sense that like you're insulting someone or calling them immature or something like that. It's just simply talking about the concept that you have, the way you understand it is 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 needing so much growth, needing so much breadth, needing so much more understanding to truly understand what it is. It needs to grow. And so in that sense, it's juvenile, just like any of our, our beliefs are as we come to the Lord that need to get fostered, flourished, and see in a less reductionistic kind of way, right? How we see it work itself out in all of life. Because, um, you know, money is certainly a component of the relationships and the resources that we have that we orient in life towards the Lord and his desires and his will and how he designed us to live in relationship with him and one another, of course it's a part of that because we live in a society where we use money. Right? If we didn't, we'd be talking about chickens or labor or something else would come into play and you'd be like, I'm not giving my chicken to that guy. Right? So if we use money here, and so that is a component, but it is by no means the thing. By no means. It's just something that's a part of our lives. So I want to open with a familiar passage then. One, if you've been around the church any period of time, if you've read about uh, the things that Jesus said, you, you probably will at least recognize. It's in Matthew 6, in 19, verse 19 through 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or your, yours might say mammon. So, we want to pause from that section of Scripture and look at Scripture as a whole for just a second because the narrative that we understand life in is what determines how we interpret and understand all the little components of life and all the things that we hear, all the, all the truth sayings that we hear in the culture, all, all of everything, these narratives, how we see the narrative of our life interprets that, right? Sometimes it sees it rightly, sometimes it distorts it, but regardless, we see life through these narratives usually. And so biblically, we look at it and we realize that back in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, he created man, and he said, this is who I am, this is who you are, and this is how we're going to relate to one another, right? We see it uh, back in Genesis, let me read it for you real quick, um, one, 127 and following, it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it was so, in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. So everything that he had created, he said, was good. And he created not just stuff, right? It wasn't just stuff. It wasn't just dirt and plants and uh, people and whatever. It wasn't just the things in the creation, but it was the ordered relationship of the things one to another, just not as they related to one another, but as they related to God as well. It's their creator and the one who designed the meaning, the purposefulness, and the, and, and, and the how of life, not just the what, but the how. He created it. He said it was good, but they chose not to follow that, right? If you know the story, they chose to eat of the, of the fruit of the tree that was forbidden in the garden. It was the context. It was the thing that, in a sense, showed this is who I am. This is who you are. This is how we're going to relate to one another. You're not up here. I'm not down there. There's an order to things, and you have to recognize the revelation, the authority that I have given you so that you might not just understand who I am, that you might not just understand what everything around you is like and what it's for, but that you even might understand who you are, that you're not God. And if you try to be, if you try to just launch out on this thing called life and determine for yourself what is right and wrong in every situation and, 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 and determine what things are for and how they should be used and all this stuff, if you try, if you try and do that on your own, it's going to be a disaster. But they did. They said, let's decide for ourselves what right and wrong is, and that's what we call the fall. Right? So the relationship between God and man was distorted, was broken, and God promised at that very time, he said, I'm going to send one, who will make all things right? Who will be the one who restores the relationship between you and me? That you can't do. You cannot do it for yourself, but I will send one who will come who will do that. And so we see this promise continue on to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to take you. I'm going to make a family of you. I'm going to make a nation of you so large and bless you so much. Why? Because you're amazing. No, 
because you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, right? You're not that special, but I have something special for you that you are going to give and show to everyone else because I'm a God of love, I reveal myself in this way, and dynamically those who align their lives according to me will also overflow in this way to others around them, and the whole earth will be blessed through this, right? That was the promise. So, there was a warning that came, right? As, as, as they entered into this place that God had given them, that they were to be a nation, that they might be a blessing to all the earth, that they enter into this place that was prepared for them. In Deuteronomy, we read um, in chapter 8, it says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And verse 13, When your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, and then your heart will be lifted up, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? He says, be careful because when you get all this stuff that I'm giving over to you that you might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, you will, because of your lack of need, forget who I am and look to yourselves as the sole providers of your own life. And that will be disastrous again. So, um, and it was, cyclically, throughout the nation's life. And then finally, uh, a king was raised up, and his name was David. And he wrote in Psalm 24.1, if you're familiar with that psalm at all, it says that the earth is the Lord's. Here's the king, who's the ruler over everything. And he's saying the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Everything in it. Right? It's a beautiful psalm that paints a realistic picture of a man in a position of tremendous ownership and tremendous responsibility who looks out and sees the finiteness of himself in relation to God, and he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Right. And then we see one day that this one person does come, this one that, that from the very beginning, the promised one who would come and, and make right the relationship that was broken in the garden between man and God and we see that it was a person that was coming. It wasn't a program, it wasn't rules, it wasn't, it wasn't just a belief system, it wasn't that, it was a person. A Savior was coming, right? Jesus comes in the flesh, that he dies on the cross and raises from heaven, that we might have life, okay? And so these people that he gathers to himself, he then calls the church, the body of Christ, and they are to be about the business of the king. Jesus, who's the King of kings, Lord of, Lord of lords, and we are to be about what he is about, and then we anticipate his return in the new heavens and the new earth when he comes at the end of the age, right? And that's where we find ourselves historically, contextually. That's where we find ourselves is in that period waiting now. So that's the narrative, right? And so if we see stewardship or anything else of life outside of that narrative, that biblical narrative, we're automatically distorting, from Scripture's perspective, we're distorting what we're seeing. We're distorting the way we approach life. We're infusing different kinds of meanings, different kinds of purposes, different kinds of, if you want to call it, telosses, things that we orient our life towards and pour all our resources into obtaining or going after. Okay? And we would say to ourselves, maybe as, like, as, as 21st century Americans, well, yeah, but you know, we're, we're post-Enlightenment, post-Darwinian, post-Freudian, uh, post-industrial revolution, post-feminist, post-modern, some would say post-Christian. 
I don't know if we'll ever be post-secularist, whatever. You just kind of keep, as time goes on, you just keep getting post, 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 post. All these ideas, it doesn't matter if you even know what they mean. It's just all these kind of like large, trendy narratives that paint a picture of reality for you and you're supposed to adjust your life according to, right? And over time, you may forget any of these happened, and historically you will because you weren't even alive when most of them were going on, but you will be the one who's the beneficiary, for better or for worse, of these ideas, and it will paint for you a picture of reality, and you will live your life according to that picture you have in your mind of what reality is like. So we have these narratives. But what Jesus is saying, quit distorting who I am through your cultural narrative. Quit doing that. Quit reading me through your narrative and start reading your culture through my narrative. I'm the one who created all things. I'm the one who gave all things meaning and purpose. I'm the one who's bringing all things to an end. Everything that happens in life should be understood in light of that. So quit doing all this fancy stuff, trying to excuse things I've said, what I was about, all these different kinds of things, and read and understand who I am, what I've said, and align your life accordingly so that you might experience life as I created it to be. Not just so that you're a good moral person and you can look at the person next to you and be like, oh, well, I've got it together, and they don't. No, that you might experience life as it's meant to be lived. This is what Jesus says when he's talking about, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have life apart from you. You have something else. It's like you're biologically living. You're doing things. You're working. You're whatever. You have relationships. That's not life because that's not what life was designed to be like. It's something else. It's existence, but it's not life like I've meant it to be. And so this is then... um, where we find ourselves, because if our cultural narrative trumps the biblical narrative, then whenever we speak out of Scripture about things that rub up against that, we're going to find ourselves not liking what we're hearing, and maybe even trying to just completely do away with it, um, maybe make it more metaphorical than it is, maybe whatever, but just some way to get away from or out from under what it is saying to us about who we are in relationship to God and one another, right? Um, it's understandable then. We're not, cultu- we're not calling for cultural um, naiveness, naivete, right? Um, there was a guy, uh, a, a singer of a band, I don't know that much about him, but it was the, the Cold War kids, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but in r- regards to this topic, um, if you're familiar with their music at all, there's this, there's this lyric, it says... Um, If there was a worthy cause for to give to, may I be so bold as to say, the giver not knowing where the money is going is as sinful as throwing away. And that can be interpreted all kinds of ways, and is. But it's understandable, regardless of how you interpret it, um, with the, the, the writer's own background, having, you know, his dad was a Bible study leader, he was a church, uh, went with church plants, um, his mom was a counselor, Christian marriage and therapist, therapy counselor, and they got divorced. And it wrecked him. It spiritually wrecked him. And he wound up later uh, from a very you know, skeptical and kind of just disoriented 
position coming into the fold of some other Christian believers and really work through a lot of things. And I don't, I'm not sitting here talking about like I know where this guy is right now today or whatever. But it's understandable given the experiences of life how skepticism and criticism can easily come into uh, the glasses through which you see life based upon experience, right? So what we have to do then is we have to look at the glasses we're wearing and say, okay, but are, are my glasses painting a clear picture of what reality is truly like? Yeah, something disastrous happened to me. Yeah, people who shouldn't have done something did something that massively affected me. Yeah, 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 I get all that. We all get all that. We live in a broken, fallen world. Scripture paints no other picture of what life will largely be like for us in this life until Jesus comes than the fact that we will be dealing with brokenness and hurt and we will come through it by the redeeming and regenerating and gracious love of God. So there's no, there's, no, there's no fluff. There's no rosy picture painted up about what Jesus says life is going to be like. But he is there in it with us and for us. And so we have to then appropriately put our skepticism and our criticisms upon the individuals and the events themselves that may have done that to us, but not unto Jesus himself. We need to rightly place those the skeptical eyes and glances and criticisms that we might see rightly. So we go back then, right? So we're back now. That's kind of a big picture. Is that a big intro? That's a big intro. But now we're going to get actually into the text that we read. Okay, so 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so that seems just practical, right? You've got some stuff. Don't put it in places that are likely to have it get taken from you or have it deteriorate. Um, but in fact, it's, it's, it's so much more in his criticism and what he's saying in this long long explanation and, 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 and discourse that he's giving, that he's hit just then the three primary sources of wealth, right? When he talks about the moth and the rust and the stealing, the, the three primary sources of wealth at the time would be the ornate garments that you would have, the clothing, uh, the corn and grain that you would store up, the food goods like that, and then obviously the precious metals and whatever use, was used for currency and stuff that you would hide in your house, or something like that. And they would literally, when it's talking about breaking in and stealing, I mean, that word is like a digging in, is what that word is. And it's cool, why? Because the houses were made out of clay, and people would literally dig holes in your wall and come into your house, take your stuff. Um, but that's what he's hitting on. He's hitting on the three primary sources of wealth, and he's like, don't lay these things up where they can be taken. Store up your treasures in heaven. We think about treasure, and what do we do? We automatically think of money. We think a treasure chest filled with gold and silver, like that's us. When we think of treasure, that's what we think. Because why? Because of who we are. Because who we are here, right? In a Western capitalist, blah, 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 blah. That's just who we are. It's just kind of what we enter into when we come out of the womb. But in that time, that phrase would have meant, not that necessarily, it would have meant a couple things. One, the treasures in heaven would have been the kind deeds done on earth. Like that's what you would have been storing up, the kind deeds done on earth or the character of your own soul. And so this is how you would store up treasures that can't be rotted, 
stolen, deteriorated. Why? I mean, this is something that we're supposed to learn really, really early on as we hear that whole little phrase, well, you can't take it with you. I mean, that's what it's telling you. Orient your life in such a way that you don't pour everything into amassing more and more stuff. Because why? Because it's absurd. You can't take it with you. And so, that's kind of our version of storing up treasures in heaven. You can't take it with you, right? So, that's what he's telling them. And where we find ourselves now then um, is in a culture that really just doesn't even talk about death. We don't really even talk about the can't take it with you. We don't even talk about, we don't talk about the context of life now because in relation to what life is really like because we don't talk about death much. And so we find ourselves in a really weird place not being these people who are seeking wisdom through the word of God, seeking to orient our lives towards the things that God says are meaningful and purposeful, but, and so we don't really find ourselves in a place like the psalmist in, um, in, in, in Psalm 90, right? It says, it opens like this. It opens, uh, Lord, you have, you have your dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, right? It opens like that. It talks about this, this eternal, everlasting God who has always been there. And yet then down in, in relation to him, then what? So we're, we're finite people. We haven't. And so what, what do you get in verse 12? It says, so teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Right? Seeing how finite your life is, how little time you have on the earth, to store up these treasures in heaven, these real ones, right, gives us wisdom as we live life out. But if we live by the mantra that, hey, whoever dies with the most toys wins, it's a very different narrative, and it's played out all the time, but it's a narrative that will completely orient your life in a very different way. Um, In verse 21... He then goes on and says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be, will be also. Um, it's, it's a very interesting, right? So you pick up on the future tense, though. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. As you orient your life, so you will, as a person, be shaped and conformed to that thing. We think it's different. We think... We are as we are, and therefore we set our goals, our five-year plans, our ten-year plans. We do our kind of thing. We orient our, our, we put our gaze towards us. But it's not the case. He says, where you put your treasure, that's where you will be. That's where your heart will be oriented. That's, um, there's a few of us going through this really um, interesting book right now. It's called uh, um, You Are What You Love by J.K. Smith, if you're familiar with him. And so he says, you are what you love, but what's great about it is when he presses in, he says, but you may not love what you think. And that's when he really tries to dig in and get at a little bit more of this kind of self-deception we have in this culture about who we are and what we're doing as we orient our lives towards different things, right? You are what you love, but you may not love what you think. You may not love what you say you love. 
is what he's saying. There's all these things you believe, right? Somebody comes, sits down with you at coffee. Oh, what do you think about life? How do you think people should live? What do you think the point of it all is? Blah, 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 blah. And you say all these things, and then I follow you around for a month or two, and lo and behold, it doesn't jive completely 100%, right? And that's not just because, you know, Christians are hypocritical or we have unrealistic ethical codes or like anything like that, right? No. What's the answer? Oh, well, the fall, sin. Okay, that's always the answer, right? Why are we inconsistent with what we say we believe is true? That's always the answer. That's the short answer. There's a, there's a longer answer, right? And this is the, this is the fact that our, we, we are what we love. It's, we're not just cognitive beings who say, oh, these are the right things that are true. Okay, I embrace that. I assent to that. And now I guess I'm just going to wait around. My whole life's going to conform to that. It doesn't work that way. You orient your life towards the things that you say are true. And as you do so, your heart changes in that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We lose this in our culture by becoming like belief-oriented people, thinking like um, discipleship, following Jesus, all these different things is primarily a mental thing. And we just need to purge ourselves of wrong beliefs and insert right beliefs. That that's just going to like, like, right, or this is going to radically transform who we are. Now, it's, 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 you can't do away with that. Like, of course you have to purge wrong beliefs and acquire right beliefs. You have to get a straight narrative. Like, of course. But that is not what human life is like, and that is not primarily how it is lived out. And that's what he's getting at. Smith is trying to get at. And they think about that. You may have seen my three-year-old. If she was here right now, I'd say, baby, I'd say, what is the chief end of man? And she would say, the chief end of man is to love God and glorify, you know, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, like, you know, she's three. She knows that. Um, I didn't know that until I was 30. But, it, but she, she's three. Like, it doesn't, it hasn't transformed who she is at all. And it's not just because she's a three-year-old and she's like a three-year-old. It's because the reality of that truth statement that she knows up here hasn't actually worked itself out in her life. And she hasn't... She, I mean, she's, she hasn't oriented her life towards that, but that's, that's the difference. So there's all kinds of cultural phrases out there, all kinds of, like, right answers, if you will. If you walk around, you're like, oh, well, how should you live life? Well, you just do whatever you feel good um, as long as you don't hurt somebody, or, well, that's, that's okay for you, maybe not okay for me. Like, you hear all these different kind of ethical mantras, but have you ever met a person who lived those out correctly? Who, who, I've never met a person who 100% lived out either of those statements. Whatever's good for you is good for you, but not good for me. And, that, and a society is really going to work that way. Or, um, you know, you can do whatever feels good as long as you don't hurt. That's the one caveat. Don't, as long as you don't hurt somebody, right? As, as if that's really obtainable and actualizable in a culture, okay? I've never seen that worked out that way. And so we, don't, we shouldn't then be like... Um, thinking that somehow if we just order our beliefs rightly, then it's going to be perfect. We'll be able to kind of willfully, morally, completely align ourselves with all the things that we say are true about life. We can't. We can't do that. Because we are, as, as Paul talks about, in a situation where we don't do the things we want to do, but we do do the things that we don't want to do. And so that we are working through, as Jesus is conforming us more and more to his image, we see those tensions and shortcomings in our own lives, but we orient our lives towards what he tells us to orient our lives towards, and so we experience life. 
and we begin to experience liberation, not slavery, to the things that God created to be tools and useful, purposeful things for human life lived out in relationship to him. So, then in 22 and 23, it seems kind of enigmatic, right? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is your darkness, how great is the darkness? So it kind of seems like, what? But it's very simple, really, is that the eye, in a sense, is this kind of narrative lens through which you see and experience all in life. It's how you interpret reality. And as you interpret things rightly, it's saying your body will be full of light. If you interpret things wrongly, if you distort reality and what it's like, it will begin to fill you with darkness. But now, if the light, and here's in quotes, in you actually is darkness, it's actually a distorted perspective of reality, and yet you're saying this is what good and this is how human life should be and this is how we should all live together, but that's actually darkness. He's saying, how great is that darkness? So, because it, 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 the eye was originally distorted in the garden, right? It's, it's, it, it gives us a false view of ourselves, of other people, and of God. And so when we have this distorted eye, what do we do? We wind up being uh, prejudiced people towards others. We wind up being jealous people towards things. We wind up being conceited people who have a distorted understanding of ourselves. And so we don't then become these people who understand, as Psalm says in 36.9, that in your light, we see light. If we want to see life as it really is, analogous to how God sees it, we have to look and see how he revealed to us what life is like, what it's for, how it's supposed to be, how we're to relate to one another. What does it mean to love God and love your neighbor? What does all of that mean? How do we do that? How should we understand reality that I walk in such a way that my life is oriented in that, in that way? And so within that, then, I see, as if it seems like we've completely gone over here from stewardship, um, in that, we see that our stewarding are taking care of someone else's stuff, right? It's all, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So every component, every facet, every part of my life is that which I do and orient towards the telos that God has given us, that end goal. Glorify the Lord and enjoy him forever. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, that's what we do. We steward stuff, relationships, everything, because it's all his. It's all his. It's not just stuff he created. He created the order of it and the relational order of it as well. It's all his. So I steward my my friends, I steward my relationships, I steward all my, my pocketbook, my whatever. Um, and that's different. Is that not different? Hopefully that's very different than the cultural narrative you hear about what churches are like when it comes to the issues of stewardship, and by that they mean money. Right? It's very different. Um, and it's a very different picture of the, of the church living out its its existence in cultures and communities where they're meant to be a blessing and to bring light and life. So, um, so Jesus speaks then of this eye, right? <clears throat> he talks about the eye as the lamp of the body. 
And he says, if your eye is healthy um, or if your eye is bad, whatever your translation may say, I'm in the ESV, um, it could say, um, for the healthy eye, it could say single. It could even say generous because that's actually where this word comes from, interestingly. Um, And for bad, it may say evil or grudging, if it's kind of more an old school translation, right? And so the point is then of having a generous eye towards people, not so that our judgments are generous and our actions, right? Not generosity just in the sense of giving money, right? You can give lots of money and still not be generous. so being, a, having a generous eye, a good eye, a healthy eye, an eye that sees, thi- sees things as God sees those things. Not a, not a naive, eye that, naive eye that just, oh, I'm sure they're a good person even though they're standing there with a gun. And, you know. Not a naive eye, but an eye that sees reality as God sees reality so that we might be generous in our judgments and our actions towards other people. And the vice eye, the, not the virtuous eye, but the viceful, the evil, the bad eye that's grudging, that robs people, it robs you of your happiness, that it, 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 it makes you distort how you perceive other people and how they perceive you, and then it also puts you in a position to where you're opposed to God because you see things differently than he sees them. You go after things that he says are not that will bring death and not life into your life. So... <clears throat> This is what he's talking about with these eyes, and it's really interesting, too, because when you, when you, when you think about the, um, where he talks about the rust, right? It's really that word is kind of like an eating away. It's not just necessarily like the, the reddish-brown stuff we see on metal. It's just an eating away, generally. Um, and we, that same word, then, in the section before we're looking at in fasting, where he says, hey, you religious guys who go out into the public and you just sit there and look so, you, dis, you distort your faces so everybody knows you're fasting, right? And how holy you are. This is just a complete abomination in the eyes of God as it deals with the, pro, with, with the spiritual discipline of fasting and what it's supposed to be like, the value and the benefit of it. Instead, you're totally distorting the whole thing. And in that, you see as you go into the culture and you do this thing, you distort your face. And you're like, oh, I really want people to know I'm fasting. And this same word, this distorting, is the same. It comes from a, it's a different connotation, but the same word that we see in this rust, this eating away. It's an eating away because it's not the way in which God has called the church to live in the culture. And if they do that, then there is an eating away. There is an eroding that will happen, a distorting of what God says. And we see that in the... Um, in the way in which the culture views the church. Now, it will, be, it will always be offset, as Jesus said. He says, look, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Get over it, right? I come, I bring, I shine light in dark places, and people who like dark things don't like the light being shined on them. So get over it. There will be people who do not like you because you follow me, period. But we create for ourselves, oftentimes, all kinds of other hurdles we have to overcome, because we don't orient ourselves in the way in which Christ has told us to orient our lives, right? So that's what the, part of the, the, the eating away is getting at it with the distorted lens that we look at life through is we as believers have to, as we follow Jesus, also be mindful to rightly orient our own lives in the way in which he's called us, stewarding everything as he's given us, and that brings liberation. Freedom from the things that are never meant to entangle you is a liberation that is experienced in the human life as they see things and understand things in the way God understands them and then created them to be experienced and to be possessed, right? Um, 
if you think about this word, if, if yours says mammon, it may say money at the end of 24, where it says you can't serve God and money. The first part of the verse is very straightforward and obvious. You can't serve two masters. Like back then, that was an impossibility. You can't do that. But uh, here he draws a contrast. He says you cannot serve God and money or mammon. And this word, like the, his, history, the history of the word is really kind of interesting tale too, right? Because originally the word just meant possession, like just generic, didn't really have any kind of negative, positive connotation, it was just stuff, right? And then later it wound up, the word kind of became this word of when I would entrust my stuff over to someone else. That would be my mammon. I'd be entrusting that over to you for some purpose or whatever. But down the road, historically, then it changed. And it actually became that in which I entrust myself to. So it was a possession, then it became a possession I gave to somebody else, and then all of a sudden it became this possession which I give myself to. And you see then why the word sometimes becomes capitalized. <laughs> because it's, it's gone from just being a thing to all of a sudden being an idol, or what scripture calls an idol. It's a thing that all of a sudden we give ourselves over to and we orient our lives towards it instead of having it and orienting it towards what God calls us to orient our lives towards. That's just interesting how that plays out with the history of the word and then how Jesus is using it here. There's an acquaintance I have. She's a singer-songwriter, and if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you would love her because she did this whole album on C.S. Lewis characters. It's like these kind of autobiographical lyrics of each individual character in the Narnian series, which it's really great, but um, there's this lyric <coughs> that she has in one of them, um, and it was about uh, Eustace, right, if you remember, isn't that the guy who turned into the dragon? Um, so it says, I wore this bracelet bright and gold, and that overnight became my chain. And it talks about the way in which the stuff that we long for and go after and orient our lives towards, all of a sudden, if we wake up one day and find ourselves having our whole lives oriented towards that, we've actually become a slave to that thing. And it can happen like that. Right? Um, one, one author said, um, if you remember the, the grudging eye or the bad eye, it says the grudging eye distorts our vision. The generous eye alone sees clearly, for it alone sees as God sees. Um, and so we don't want then as people who are greatly blessed um, to allow the blessing that we have to become a curse in our life. Um, because we think we see how that can easily happen, just if you look at it in the in, in the context of where we are in, in chapter six, right? Because in the beginning of chapter six, he talked about giving to the to the needy, to the poor. Talked about giving to the poor, right? Then he goes on and he actually teaches how people to, teaches people how to pray in the Lord's prayer, and he says, "On earth as it is in heaven." That's how you're to orient your life. Starts with our Father who art in heaven, and it, and then it says, on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we're to be. That's what we're supposed to be about making happen, right? And then he talks about the fasting thing we talked about, the laying up of treasures, and then the consequences, I think, if you see some of this in here, is that if we don't, if we talk about becoming a slave to the things that we're given, that we should actually be orienting towards the purposes of the Lord, he says, don't be anxious about the things you're going to eat, sleep, and wear, where you're going to sleep and wear. Don't be anxious about all these kinds of things. Um, he goes on 
And he talks about um, don't, the, the way in which you will judge other people. He goes on and talks about the way your heart will be turned and criticized and, 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 and be in contrast with, with God. All of this through a distorted lens of seeing life. All of this comes quickly if we don't have that generous eye, the one that sees as God sees all things. Um, and so what I hope then is that we could, um, as, as Jesus ends up, ends this, this kind of section in the end of chapter 7, as he's speaking and teaching the people, um, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so I hope, for many of us, it's reminding ourselves of that. For some of us, this may be the first time of ever hearing this but that we might be astonished by the words of Jesus because he's the one who teaches from a position of authority and not just like some talking head out there, not just some scribe, not some person who declares they have religious, you know, religious authority, but as the one who actually is from the position of authority because he created and designed all things and so he can comment on it truthfully. truthfully. Um, so... Um, he, you know, Jesus, he, he's the one who actually showed us stewardship, if you will. Um, he's the one who came down, oriented, oriented his whole life towards the will and purpose of the Father. And in doing so, gathered people to himself, redeemed you and me, saved our souls because he rightly ordered his life according to the will of God and according to the power of that he had as the one who divested himself of all right and glory that he might come and clothe himself in flesh and walk among us, right? So if you have still an aversion towards stewardship in general, if all that we've talked about hasn't done a bit of good in that way, understand that if you have an aversion towards stewardship in general in your own life, then you also have a, an aversion towards the stewardship of Jesus in his. But what he has properly acquired for us through orienting his life according to the will of the Father, as he has made a way that you might have a life with the forgiveness of your sins and um, the eternal life that comes through the power of his resurrection. Um, so I hope our stewardship is seen in that light then, as, as Jesus is the one who perfectly stewarded all that he had, right? um, reconciling us to God. Um, saying that he won't lose one, saying that he would go after, he would leave the flock and go after the one, saying that he would do all of these things for, um, he says that no one can come to the Father except by me, and those that he gives me, I will lose not one. Right. Um, so, if you don't orient your life, if you don't steward all that you have like, like, like Jesus, if you don't, ask God to help you do that um, as we're all on that journey, right? That's part of the bridge deal, right? We are on a journey towards God. It's a process. It's not a daily thing. Nobody walks out of here and says, you know what? These are the nine things I know I really haven't oriented my life towards God in, and I'm just going to change those. Um, it is a process whereby the, the Spirit of God works 
in us, through us, and out of us. All of those things that we need um, to have happen, that we might walk faithfully with him and experience life as he's designed it to be lived. If you don't, then stewardship talk usually just winds up being something like, you know, you feel guilty, right? Here's what you should be doing. You're not, so you should feel bad about that. Um, And that's terrible. That's really terrible. Um, And I hope that 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 isn't the case here, today, or ever, but that you might see all of the things that you have and are and relationships that you come into and all that you've been given and you orient that towards God and you see that not, you don't do that by means of guilt, but that you do that because of the beauty of the narrative that God has painted for you about what life is supposed to be like, ideally, and then what it can be like relative to what it is like right now until he comes and all things are as they should be. And that's where we find ourselves as we journey together as brothers and sisters. So I hope that that is encouraging and convicting truth and love, and that we can all walk hand in hand um, in that same way. So, let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, um, and we don't want to pass over saying that too quickly. Uh, Help refine us in how we flesh that out, and I pray that you would reveal to us all of the other things that we truly love, uh, even if we say that they're not worthy of being loved, um, that, that your light might shine and purge the darkness that we might uh, glorify you and enjoy you all of our days. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.